Welcome to, day, to today's podcast, Clean Eating and Tanning as Cultural Phenomena, which is part of the Warwick History Postgrad podcast series. I'm Mary Geraghty, and today I am joined by Fabiola Creed and Louise Morgan. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs> this episode contains discussion of dieting and eating disorders, which some listeners may find distressing. Uh, to start us off, could you both tell us a little bit about your PhD and how you came to be researching these super interesting topics? Um, shall we start with you, Fabi? Yes. So um, originally I'm from Nottingham and I tanning culture wasn't very prevalent there. But then when I went to Liverpool and did my undergraduate studies in history, um, I suddenly realised that tanning culture was a huge part of everyday culture with the Liverpudlians. Um, and during my time there, I became really interested in culture-bound syndromes, so environmental, commercial pressures, and social culture values that sort of influence everyday behaviours and sort of lifestyles. Um, and I ended up doing my undergraduate dissertation on eating disorders, uh, mainly bulimia in gay men in New York from the 1970s to 1990s. Came back to Nottingham, obviously had to think of a topic that was original, that I'd get funding. Um, and again, this tanning culture just disappeared. So I looked into it and then realised that the northwest, but also northeast, so in Newcastle, um, have so many sunburn salons. But also then when I looked further, I noticed that there's urban influences, um, there's not like a class influence, and also melanoma statistics show that they have more uh, prevalence of skin cancer rates, instance and mortality. So yeah, I put this topic forward because um, it was another culture bound syndrome essentially and managed to get funding. So that's how I came onto the tanning topic. Um, and yeah, my my thesis, which I just finished, um, was titled uh, Advertising Stereotypes and Addiction and basically understanding um, sunbed consumption in England from the 1970s to 1990s. Great, congratulations on finishing. Thank you. <laughs> um, and Louise, uh, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on and, and your research journey? Um, yeah, sure. So I did my undergrad dissertation was on um, the history of homosexuality in Victorian Britain. And it was looking at the um, differences between Scottish and English law and how that was treated. Um, and then I took a year out, went and did my master's in history of medicine and looked at medical evidence in those same court cases. Um, and then during my master's, I uh, started looking at the history of disordered eating, um, got really into kind of like Susan Sontag sort of stuff, looking at the idea of metaphors um, and how language shapes um, how we understand phenomenon. Um, and then basically decided that it had enough of the <laughs> studying homosexuality and was really interested in this kind of disordered eating. Um, and it was would have been about 2017, which is at the same time as there's this kind of mass backlash against clean eating. Um, so the two sort of made massive amounts of sense in my head to link them up. Um, yeah, started my PhD. I'm just coming to the end of my second year now. Um, so my PhD is broadly entitled something like Eat Better Not Less, Contextualising Clean Eating in Contemporary Britain. Um, so the first sort of section of my PhD will look at clean eating. It looks at its rise, it looks at its um, sort of proliferation in society and it looks at its fall 
or sort of questionable fall. Um, and then the second section of my PhD will look at the associated eating disorder, which comes with clean eating um, or which has been linked to clean eating um, and tries to sort of work out how we as a society um, understand disordered eating and how that develops. That's really interesting. I've never heard topics like these. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's continue with that uh, line of thought, Louise. Um, could you tell us a bit about, you know, what clean eating is? Um, and you you mentioned a couple of the uh, disorders that are attached to this, especially orthorexia, and how this differs from other eating disorders. Could you just um, kind of talk us through that? Sure. So um about a third of my thesis looks at what clean eating actually is. Um, no one seems to agree. Like the broad kind of understanding is that it's a way of eating which emphasise emphasizes eating whole natural foods in as close to their natural state as possible um, and avoiding processed foods. Um, the difficulty comes in that no one can quite agree what clean foods are, what whole foods are, what processed foods are. Um, there's lots of variation along there. Um, and kind of trying to work out what that definition is, um, is, is a challenge, um, especially because of things like the terms which are used are often really emotionally charged. Things like clean is quite an emotional term when you sort of look at it. Um, so people get quite defensive of what they think is clean and then people get quite angry at what people therefore consider dirty. Um, so yeah, not a straightforward answer, but not a straightforward question either. Um, basically, the sort of prior to the big growth of clean eating, um, there is a new sort of form of disordered eating, which is um, discovered isn't really the right word because there's argument it's always existed and we've just miscategorized it. But it's defined um, in 1997 by an American physician who basically it comes up with this term orthorexia nervosa with ortho coming from the greek for um pure and right and correct um and he basically defines it as an obsessive way of eating considering healthy foods which stands in opposition to something like anorexia which is interested in the body um orthorexia instead is interested in the diet um so at the moment, it's considered a form of disordered eating. It's not an eating disorder in its own right. Um, but there's a lot of campaigns going on to try and get it recognised because they see it as being a big issue. And activists who are trying to get it recognised um, very explicitly link it to the sort of mass prolifer proliferation of clean eating. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, so... Fabi, in the same vein, you're kind of also looking at this medical side of tanning um, and skin cancer in particular. And I know that you've just started early days uh, researching a specific product called um, Melanotan. Could you possibly tell us what that is, how it works? Yeah, so uh, it's actually a very new technology. So a decade into my research on the sunbed industry, which looked through the 1980s, I noticed that in the early 1990s, there was this world war wide, um, worldwide war against skin cancer. Um, and there was an explosion of new tanning technologies that produced a healthier alternative tan, apparently. So tanning serums and um, tanning patches and pills and so on. Um, although you'd kind of use them whilst you were also tanning in the sun. So I'm not sure how protective they were, but also other protective technologies like UV watches. But the one that really caught my attention was melanotan. 
Um, so this was reported heavily in the Daily Mail, um, of course, in the early 1990s, because the Daily Mail is just obsessed with tanning culture since the 1990s onwards. And scientists at the University of Arizona were conducting, as I said, radical research by testing hormones that stimulated melanin production on animals. Um, and this eventually got tested on pale skinned men. And I think the report says that after 10 days of daily injections, the men had developed a tan on both their heads and shoulders without actually being exposed to UV. Um, so this apparently, although it was funded by a French beauty company, eventually got funded by a French beauty company. The main aim was to protect vulnerable fair skinned people against the risk of skin cancer. Um, and they managed to get funding and were adhering to the FDA guidelines by slowly increasing the concentration to more evenly darken their um, test subjects um, to protect against skin cancer, but other skin, condi uh, yeah, skin conditions. So it kind of widened. So, for example, like hypersensitivity. Um, and they were really confident in saying that it would be released on the market within three years um, and would even potentially be on prescription on the NHS to British citizens who are most susceptible to sunburn and skin cancer. But what actually happened was that um, during the 1990s, the clinical trials failed, um, but it still got picked up again in the late 1990s uh, by, I, I couldn't can't work out whether it's the Australian government or an Australian health organisation. Um, these again failed. I need to investigate further why and also why it kept on changing location, the, the research and scientists, because it was in America. I think there's some studies in UK that ended up in Australia, which understandably has the worst rates of melanoma um, mortalities. But one, one of the first side effects that they wrote, noticed um, when, when a scientist accidentally apparently injected himself was that it caused an eight hour um, erection alongside um, with vomiting and lightheadedness. So then during the 2000s, new funding emerged to see if it could be a hormone that temporarily cured uh, female sexual dysfunction and erectile dysfunction. Um, but these failed again and in the clinical development by the 2003. But there was so much reports, so many media reports about it um, in the early 2000s that it kind of got advertised as sort of the Barbie pill um, and then suddenly I think around 2005 onwards it became really popularly bought and consumed through the black market on the internet and even to this day um, it had there are so many websites that actually sell uh, this this injection um, and it seems to mainly be used it seems to be strongly linked to bodybuilders so on like bodybuilding websites and youtube channels and so on where it's kind of linked in with steroid abuse as well um, and yeah i checked this morning and yeah you can still get it as a tanning injection so it said they sell syringes with needles but also nasal sprays um, and they range from about 18 pounds for 10 milliliters to about 725 to 900 pounds for 500 milliliters so yeah it's popular and still bought to this day so that's basically what this tanning injection is that has absolutely blown my mind. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> that is mad. Um, I'm really interested in this uh, kind of element of um, the cosmetic and the medical. And that's something that you both link quite closely. Um, and and also how popular culture kind of drives research and research drives popular culture. Um, and I was kind of hoping to continue along this line. So uh, 
Louise, you've kind of already mentioned this, but um, that there was a backlash against clean eating. Um, and I'm wondering kind of where this backlash came from, because you've mentioned about, um, you know, social media and, and promoting and so on. Uh, was this backlash primarily from the public or was it from the scientific realm? Kind of what happened with that? Um, so it's quite an interesting one in that it's a very public backlash that some science is involved in. Um, so basically, one of the key kind of criticisms of clean eating is that it's a diet, it's a fad diet. Um, and we all kind of accept universally that fad diets are not good because statistically you're more likely to gain more weight after a fad diet than you are um, if you don't fad diet, they can cause a lot of long-term health issues. Dieting in general is not good for your body. Um, there's a reason that we shouldn't do it kind of thing, um, which also means there's a reason that it's such a huge market. Economically, it's really successful. Um, clean eaters constantly, um, it doesn't matter which clean eating book you pick up, it will always say this is not a diet, it's a lifestyle. Um, it's not a diet, it's not a diet, it's not a diet. You just are choosing to eat healthy foods. Um, and you're changing your entire lifestyle to reflect this. So part of the backlash comes from that kind of statement, because to so many people, it's clearly a diet. You're restricting foods. You're choosing not to eat certain foods that you might otherwise have eaten because you believe that there's a health benefit to them, whether or not that health benefit is proven. Um, and the scientific evidence, in some ways, it's really obvious. It's really commonsensical, right? Like, obviously, an apple is healthier than a bag of crisps. But the problem is that they use things like vitamins and minerals, um, and they talk a lot about detoxing and superfoods, um, which have limited uh, sort of scientific proof and scientific evidence. So what happens is that some food scientists basically start to say, actually we don't have any proof for what you're arguing here um this this isn't true um so part of the reaction is this kind of popular science um which is why the backlash becomes so big is because food scientists sort of become popular for arguing this and people like anthony warner um who has the blog and published a book called the angry chef he is originally a chef and a food scientist and then basically goes on this tirade against all fad dieting but particularly clean eating which he sees as particularly insidious because of this kind of pretense it isn't a fad diet so that's sort of one part of the backlash um, and then the second part of the backlash builds on a real kind of longer history of fat activism and body positivity um, so it talks a lot about how clean eating is actively anti-body positivity because rather than accepting your body for what it is, and rather than just eating what you want to eat and being happy in who you are, you're actively setting out to change these things. And they focus a lot about things like demographics. They talk about how the majority of clean eaters are upper middle class white women um, who are independently wealthy or were wealthy before um, due to their parents' jobs. Um, they talk about privilege a lot. Um, and they also talk a lot about how in an ideal world, you would just eat what you wanted to eat, and that would be okay. Um, and they see clean eating as also dangerous in that it similarly hides this kind of dieting. Um, but they see it as mostly dangerous because they think that people will buy into it and become obsessed with it, um, which they then link to orthorexia and they link to disordered eating. Um, so yeah, that's basically like the two kind of 
sort of forms of the backlash, but they interact with each other quite heavily. They use each other's research to justify their arguments. Um, so it's like a real dialogue um, about how to prevent the spread of clean eating and how to prevent it, particularly to young women, um, is always the concern. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, continuing with this idea of like the medical and the public discourse intertwining, um, Fabi, I'm wondering, uh, it, with cosmetic technologies, especially in this case, tanning technologies, um, can you talk a bit about how these technologies were represented or perhaps misrepresented in newspapers and magazines um, and how this in turn affected the public uh, mood and the cultural phenomenon of tanning? Yeah, so they were presented ironically, that tanning culture is just riddled with ironies as well, um, especially in the medical discourse and backlash against popular culture, but also kind of fueling and encouraging it as well. So I think it's quite ironic because although there was this worldwide war on skin cancer, um, the medical experts and public health research quickly realised that tanning culture was so ingrained they weren't, they couldn't really ban it or stop it, which again is borderline impossible because you can't stop people sunbathing. And essentially UVA and UVB um, is, does does have lots of health benefits as well, so vitamin D um, and so on, because skin conditions. So it was in media reports re resiliently embedded. So quite often when there was a whole article going against the sunbed industry or these tanning technologies and so on that might cause harm the reporter would kind of weaken and undermine their warnings against tanning by say, basically saying look at Baywatch try telling that to Pamela Anderson um, it's, it's not going to go away and th this, this changed the direction of sort of scientific research um, in these visual contradictions and um, rhetorical contradictions because they'd, they'd also have say for example like a beautiful model that would be sunbathing as they go on about skin cancer um, so they quickly change and Cancer Research UK um, and lots of other sort of melanoma organisations started to focus more on selling alternative healthier tans so tanning serums um, so yeah this essentially shows how popular culture influences health advice and scientific um, information and how this influenced new tanning technologies that were enablers rather than discouragers um, and even in the 2000s when this this amazing article appeared called the miracle barbie pill in the daily mail it promised that this pill makes you tanned and oh so frisky but will this so-called barbie tablet make you happy all these tanning injections make you happy which essentially the the title in itself shows the sort of ironies of tanning culture um but also this desire for the public to perceive their skin as sort of malleable plastic and kind of have this malleable desirable um body what i would really like to do because it is very early days and essentially this melanoma tanning injection only really stems off a few pages from my actual phd thesis is to correlate the medical media feedback loops between the medical journals and newspapers to see what information is said in the medical journals um, and also where it is. Is it in the dermatology journals or the genetic one or the general industry and cosmetic ones, um, which concentrate more on everyday technologies um, and how this information or sort of scientific knowledge is, is transmitted into newspapers and what kind of tones they have. 
Um, and also fictional films, because I think that's something that a lot of medical historians overlook. They don't look at fictional television programmes and films. Um, so I'd love to see if there was anything about tiny injections, which obviously is a medical, was originally a medical technology. So how has that been transmitted in popular culture? And this is where I have a slight plug in. So if anyone knows anything um, or has seen any television programmes with these with these tanning injections, I'd be great to know. Um, please email me. <laughs> thank you that's yeah that's so interesting and, and this idea of body image kind of keeps coming up in both of your research and this idea of a desirable body whether it's um uh being a certain weight or uh being a certain uh, skin tone and, and i'm i'm wondering um about who profits off these ideas and obviously the cosmetic industry is mad for um profiting off uh, people's insecurities and I'm kind of wondering about um, uh, in both cases is there always someone who profits um, and uh, who benefits from pushing the, these things is it stakeholders is it um, uh, social media influencers um, I'm wondering Louise if you can talk a bit about um, this kind of uh, other side side to it all yeah um I think it's an interesting question um, with, with sort of the group of clean eaters I look at who are primarily British women. Um, they really how they get started is on social media. So they start blogs. Um, they have Instagram accounts particularly, which really help their growth. And what they say starts as an organic community of people who read their blogs and they comment on the Instagram posts becomes this kind of mass following we're talking sort of millions of followers here if not more um, and from that they get offered books um, and then once the books go into the sort of bookshops and they become really popular because all the followers go and buy the books other people start to hear it and it spreads their kind of message um, which then in turn kind of generates more money for them so there's this kind of perception that they make the money from the cookbooks which in part is true a lot of these books are really really highly successful um but also at the same time instagram is monetized they put adverts on instagram they advertise absolutely everything from sports clothes to laundry detergent um they introduced a law i think in 2017 or 2018 which um basically meant that they had to declare when things were ads and this applied to all instagram users at all and uh that really showed just how economically viable advertising on Instagram can be but also how much of it was previously hidden um, or not obvious that it was an advert. So basically they benefit economically from people buying into this idea of their lifestyle because it's not just about selling the diet or the food that they're eating and the cookbooks which help you achieve those foods, it's also about buying the clothes they're wearing and it's about using the products they're using and it's using those links that they share which also generate income from for them. So they kind of benefit economically from that and they feed off of the diet industry which is one of the biggest kind of cosmetic industries in the world. Companies like Weight Watchers have been around for decades and they, they make huge amounts of money. The overall diet industry worldwide is worth billions. Um, and it, it basically, the traditional dieting works on the idea that you will fail, because if you fail, you come back. If the diet works and it works long term, you stop buying into the diet, like literally buying into it with money. 
Whereas if it fails, you try a new diet and you propel the industry further. So it helps for growth. Um, the interesting thing to me is that people who lead this backlash also benefit economically um, because they also write the books about it. They also have Instagram posts about it and they partner with other companies. So things like Dove and their kind of um, all bodies are beautiful campaign or the body shop and places which are seen as ethically better because they're about body positivity those people who are leading the backlash against clean eating and a huge part of that backlash does point out that these people economically benefit from you buying into their their lifestyle they're also benefiting from that economy um that kind of economic investment um and a lot of them as well have their own cookbooks and they have their own thing uh kind of things to promote so it's interesting in that even in criticizing it people are economically benefiting um yeah, it's a hugely economic topic, which I, I don't think I fully appreciated when I started studying it. Yeah, that, that is absolutely shocking, <clears throat> but unfortunately not surprising. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, Fabi, you also kind of look at this idea of, of, of the, um, the industry and who makes the money. And I'm wondering about um, the monetary element of melanotan but also the the wider cosmetic uh, tanning technologies that you've kind of researched recently can you talk to us a bit about that yeah so actually when I started my research on the sunbed industry each chapter introduces new stakeholders from the late 1970s to the late 1990s and how they influenced first a positive but then negative representation of a sunbed tan um, and I think that if I investigate further with the melanotan research, it'd probably be equally as complicated and controversial because it's not always who you think it is. These these influences, these stakeholders and the people they're endorsing. So I'm going to focus on and explain the sunbed industry, but I'm probably going to draw parallels to melanotan. So for a start, ironically, although the scientists usually invent these technologies, technologies they don't seem to be the ones that usually profit from from these um, so not necessarily the the inventors um, but actually also ironically quite often it's the so in terms of sunbeds the public services did actually profit so the government because sunbeds were introduced in leisure centers public swimming pools gyms um, health farms uh, both public but also private which I'll, I'll discuss um, after this and because some beds were seen as a safer alternative that admitted UVA which didn't apparently burn it, it does later it gets discovered that it does um, whereas sunbathing emits UVB which definitely causes sunburn and had more evidence of skin cancer the public services introduced those um, those those sunbeds thinking that it, it was a safer alternative and that was also an issue later down the line in the early 1990s because um, a lot of medical experts and dermatologists were slating the government saying that they had to be removed but when they did tests they realized that the commercial private public sunbeds were significantly stronger than the the the, the leisure center ones so they thought that if they removed the, the commercial ones and the sorry the public ones um, publicly provided ones and that would make people go into the commercial ones which is more harmful so that's that's complicated in itself um, and then the the private commercial industry so beauty salons and gyms these providers especially in the early 1990s 
genuine, genuinely believe that it was a site for body improvement. Um, actually, a lot of them kind of worked with the NHS because they thought that they'd be um, alleviating pressure from the NHS to cure skin conditions, which are um, quite quite common, so, so, such as like psoriasis and acne and, and yeah, several other skin conditions. So that was also an influencer and encourager, um, which had that sort of medical endorsement uh, from doctors. And then also the media, which is just massively dominant in influencing and is a constant switchboard sending these messages um, to the public. And, and that of, of, like, often had Cancer Research UK, um, interviews and celebrities and, and models and so on and then even the banks which provided small loans for startup companies um, such as the sunbed industry and then even just entertainment networks so for example game shows during the 1980s regularly sold sunbeds as a prize um, so I, I do need to look into this with Melanotan um, but I, I'm presuming it is probably as complicated and as uh, controversial um, as the sunbed industry. That is really surprising that the inventors don't seem to profit as much as all of these other kind of stakeholders. Which yeah, yeah they, they tend to get funding, but then the trials usually go wrong or scientists don't really like giving sort of a confirmed answer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, that's so interesting. I mean, the one thing that is is so necessary about this research I mean it's con it's very contemporary right and uh, both of these things still permeate our lives um, and society more generally um, and I'd like to ask both of you you know why is this history so important and why is it important to do it now and why do we need to talk about these issues um, Louise? Um, I guess for me I, I think that studying food is so vital in that it's such a huge part of everyone's everyday experience and I see that when I talk about my research to literally anyone everyone always has an opinion everyone always has a question especially because it's such a, an evocative topic um, but for me I think the important part of my research comes in with the disordered eating um, things like eating disorder statistics are only growing in this country um, we're becoming more and more aware of them but we're also seeing a higher prevalence because of that awareness um, and I think that being able to add a bit of advocacy and put in that kind of history to things and look at things from a historical perspective helps place them better in today's society. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of a mix of seeing it as something that everyone can relate to, but also being very important for a really specific group of people, which is quite a large group of people now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And Fabi? Yeah, so the tanning industry itself, even if you just look at the internet and look at tanning serums, all these injections, all pills, it's the, the industry is just worth billions. So I was actually so surprised that no one has actually looked at the sunbed industry, all these tanning technologies. But then I quickly realised that the there are no archive sources um, and the sources themselves are so fragmented, it's it's very difficult. So I can imagine why most people wouldn't approach that, um, which links to, yeah, as Louise was saying before, looking at the Internet um, as a new resource as well. I think looking at tanning really strongly utilises that. Um, 
But also I wanted to extend that to television news reports and films, which, as I said before, um, a lot of medical researchers don't look at. I understand, again, the limitations of why that is, because they're quite hard to access and very and sometimes quite expensive to access. Um, but yeah, also going back to the sort of more medical elements, skin cancer actually is a concern. Tanning culture is not going away and it is still so heavily ingrained in British culture. I mean, if you literally just go to a park for a few hours, I know this from as being a tanning historian, but you can be sat there for three hours, just eavesdrop. I bet you <laughs> there'll be so many comments on people's tans or they're insulting each other or praising each other. Or even when people greet each other um, every day, it's constantly embedded. It, yeah, constantly spoken about and it's so heavily embedded. So, yeah, that's why I think it's an important topic um, to talk about and to, to continue exploring. Just to follow on from that, just like a, a, a question. Do you think that this is here to stay? Because I mean, like, is is this phenomenon, you know, going to do the long haul or is it a fashion thing? Just generally, do you think? Um, yeah, well, the sunbed industry still exists. Um, the only, although smaller companies kind of disappeared um, and they're, their life cycles were quite short-lived. In the early 1990s, um, the tanning shop and Quick Tan had these sort of international franchises, which are doing amazingly. To be honest, I'm not really sure how they're coping with the pandemic, seeing as people can't actually access them. Um, but I've definitely seen adverts around Birmingham and Lemton Spa, um, where new tanning shops are opening up. Um, and to be honest, I, I won't be surprised if there's more tanning tanning technologies I mean I can't think of them but if these injections and now nasal sprays and before it was just a cream and lotion and plasters and capsules and stuff have only emerged in the last 10-20 years I'll be really surprised if new tan te technologies doesn't doesn't emerge um, so yeah probably is here to stay. That's so interesting um, now you mentioned the pandemic I did want to ask you both you know, as we are historians living through a pandemic and working through a pandemic, um, especially you, Fabi, you've just been completing your PhD within a pandemic. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell our listeners um, a bit about what you've been doing to kind of look after yourselves during the lockdown, you know, new hobbies, anything like that. Louise? Um, I have been reading for fun for the last time <laughs> since I started my PhD, which has been so nice. Um, reading books which are not about the body or dieting has been great. <laughs> um, and I've also been baking a lot. Um, I spend all of my day reading about diets um, and all of my targeted ads on Facebook and Instagram and everything are about diets because it's all I look at on the internet. Um, so baking is really helpful because <laughs> you're spending time not thinking about calories, which is good. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Baking is definitely one of those things that everyone is definitely getting into as well. And Fabi, what, what are you up to? Yeah, I'm so impressed, Louise. <laughs> like, you've been so productive and done so many things. Um, I actually handed in my uh, PhD, uh, my, my thesis on lockdown weekend. Um, so that was very anticlimactic where I just literally pressed the button and it went away and I thought, oh, I can't have a life anyway. <laughs> so what I've been doing um, is just having no morning alarms. So I've just been sleeping a lot and not feeling guilty about it and getting up when I want. And this has actually really, really helped me focus. 
so yeah because I don't have anything to do in the evenings anyway or anywhere to be I can just sort of it's much easier to plan my day um and to be honest I think I'm making up for the lack of sleep that I lost towards the end of my PhD and the sort of write-up sprint so that's what I'm doing sleeping a lot and being kind to myself (laughs) that is great to hear (laughs) That's definitely a good thing to be doing. Well, massive thank you for uh, joining me today. It's been so interesting hearing about your your projects um, and uh, it's going to be excellent seeing what you produce in the next few years. Um, uh, So thank you for joining me on this podcast. Well, thanks for for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening. Great. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.